Hello, and welcome to The Permanent Podcast, a podcast that is all Craig, all movie reviews, all for you. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? You you didn't, an- I asked how it's going, and you didn't respond? How How is it going? No, 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 I understand it's one-way communication. I just, I need to... N- I need to know how it's go. You know what? Never mind. Unimportant. Not important. Um, we're here doing another installment of Craig reviewing MCU movies. Cause like, why not? Started the project. Got to finish it. Okay. So here's the thing. MCU phase three is very long. <laughs> there are 11 movies and I'm not going to make an 11 movie podcast episode. So we're going to split it into two parts. I don't know where the two parts are going to divide yet, but that's a problem for later. Now, we're going to start with the movie at hand, Avengers Civil War. I mean, Captain America Civil War. Like I, uh, as before with all the other parts. And by the other, I mean two more, two other parts as with the two other. I'm a little bit on the fritz, guys. I'm a little bit on the fritz. As with the other two parts, all spoilers for not just this movie, but the MCU as a whole. Now, if I can get my brain on straight, we're going to start. Now, Captain America Civil War, like I said, should have been an Avengers movie. I feel like they only called it Captain America Civil War for two reasons. One, we just had one with Ultron. And they probably didn't want to wait so long to make Civil War. I get it. I get that. And also, they called it Captain America so they can justify having all the Captain America stuff in it. (laughs) Which, like, I know sounds like I'm defending the point with the point. But if we take a look at Bucky, right? Bucky was hardly relevant in the movie that had his name in the title. He was much more... He was a bigger player in the first Captain America movie. And so now that he's kind of a big player again, right? Because the Winter Soldier wasn't about the Winter Soldier. It was about the infiltration of S.H.I.E.L.D., right? But that makes for a not-as-cool movie title. So now Bucky's back. He's a big player. Makes it a Captain America movie, not not an Avengers movie. And if we if we look at the start of this movie, right, we have... Cap, Wanda, Black Widow, Falcon, I think just them, yeah, in Nigeria, right? And they're cleaning up the loose ends from the Winter Soldier and, like, trying to find Bucky. And and the thing about tying up the loose ends from the Winter Soldier is I feel like it was done very, very rushed, right? So we have this guy, Rumlow, or whatever his name was, And he was the guy that got away, basically, from the Winter Soldier movie, from the Winter Soldier movie. And it's like, oh, this is going to be a big deal. This is the guy that Cap has to face now. He's essentially like, this is the guy that survived the corruption of S.H.I.E.L.D. through HYDRA. And like, he's basically the only standing member of HYDRA that we're like looking for at this moment, right? He gets killed in 10 minutes. He is he is killed in 10 minutes of this movie, right? So we have this guy, you know, who gets a suit, and not not a great suit, but a suit. He gets a name, uh, Crossbones, 
and all four Avenger and there are four Avengers fighting him and his squad. And there's a lot of really cool action sequences that happen. I think black widow is, uh, uh, memorable in that sequence, but in the end, this loose end was tied up in 10 minutes. So we can move on to like, I guess the more important stuff. And like, if it's going to be only 10 minutes, just kill him in the first movie. Don't waste my time. Right. I like I guess they did it so they could cause another incident to justify the Sokovia Accords. But in the end, I felt like it was a waste of a character in Rumlow. And just in general, Captain America has a problem of having like. Poorly paced villains. Like. A complaint that I have for Civil War is Zemo is super weak and just sucks in general until the very, very, very end of the movie. So to have an antagonist just like set up and then wiped out in like 15 minutes is unsurprising, but still disappointing. But I do want to say before we move on from the intro sequence, um, it does have my favorite fall in the movie. which like crossbones shoots like an explosive round at Steve and it blows him out of the building. And he has like three points of contact where like he hit, he like lands on the ledge of the building, then falls to the ledge of a crate and then falls down. And it happens like very slow and intentionally. I don't know why. I I just thought that was a really cool fall. I mean, it, 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 it was funny in a way. And, uh, also I think, the look of despair when Wanda like accidentally takes out two floors of a building. I thought that was really cool. I thought, and I thought that that was a, a really good acting. I thought the, the, just the sheer, just the pure look of dismay and instant legitimate, instant regret. What it, it made a really good performance just in that one shot alone. But it's something that I feel like could have been done without the use of crossbones, right? Uh, Whatever. Now, on to the concept of the Sokovia Accords, right? So there's this document that half of the Avengers think is right, and there's the other half that doesn't. And the the Sokovia Accords basically breaks down to, like, hey, the Avengers... By like like the principle of the Avengers, cool. We like it. Save the Earth. Down with that. However, you guys have caused a lot of destruction in your wake. So we need to like make sure you guys are in check, and you guys are pretty much gonna be benched until the UN says this is an Avengers level threat, so to speak. Um. And I think one of the most difficult parts about watching this movie and the thing that like makes it difficult for me to like fully put myself in the movie is everyone is so decided with like Wanda kind of takes a little bit of time, but for the most part, everyone is decided on whether or not they think the Sokovia Accords are a good thing or not. There is one scene of discussion and everyone's minds are made up right? I don't know. I think it's a little more nuanced than that. It was, it was one of those things where I saw 
both sides of the argument. So because I was in the end, I was kind of okay with either side prevailing. It was difficult for me to be like, oh, I hope Iron Man succeeds or, oh, I hope Cap prevails. I think me being personally torn about the Sokovia Accords made it difficult for me to put myself in this movie fully. Zemo sucks. Gonna say it again. That's what I have written next to my notes. Zemo sucks. Uh, Hey, slight spoiler for Falcon and the Winter Soldier. He comes back in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And so, and when he did, I look, and it was like, it was like an end of episode reveal, like episode one. That was the, that was the big reveal. It was like, oh, Zemo's back. And I legitimately saw him and I'm like, who is this guy? I do not remember him. You know why? Because he's in three scenes of this movie. He's in three scenes of a movie that came out five years before the TV show. I'm going to bring it up again when we talk about Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But since I just since this is the only movie he's in until then. And he has five or six minutes of screen time. He he feels really irrelevant to this movie, which sucks because by the time we get to the end, he is revealed to have like a decent motivation and a pretty cool M.O. Like seeing him like talk about his plan and what he wanted to achieve. It would have been super cool if he had been in more of the movie. Right. If they were focused on Zemo more than they were focused on Bucky if it wasn't so much about, oh, Cap's trying to defend Bucky and more about Zemo is sowing distrust in the Avengers, I think that 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 would have made Civil War, the concept of Civil War among the Avengers, more believable and more just, like, engaging. I think that that it... I just think it would have been more engaging. This is also the movie we're introduced to Black Panther. And I was going into it. And I'm like, man, I feel like Black Panther kind of had a weak part in this movie. But watching it back again, it's small, but it is memorable. The first scene that we see T'Challa in, he's diplomatic. And his father even says, like, even though you hate, you know, even though you hate playing politics, you are very good at it. And we're like, yeah, he is. He's charismatic. He's strong. And um, after the attack on the on the UN building, he has a conversation with Black Widow that is also like very character driven, very like you see his will and his determination in just like a brief conversation with Black Widow. And f- pretty much for the rest of the movie, he's in the suit. There's like a few instances where he's out of the suit, but from there on out, he's pretty much Black Panther, like through the end. And he had really cool fighting. Um, I I think there's not much more to say about him on that. Oh, actually, yes, there is. Yes, there is. There's a scene where um Black Panther, where Bucky, Black Panther, and Cap in that order are running through a tunnel, like a a tunnel with a bunch of cars in it. And they are all sprinting faster than the cars. And like, listen, two of them are hopped up on super soldier serum. And the other one has like Wakanda magic, whatever. I haven't seen that movie in five years. Um, But like, 
it was, I don't know, it was super doofy just watching them take like super long strides and sprinting past cars going like 35 miles an hour. Um, going to a little bit more of like the character driven parts of this movie. Something I really didn't like was how wishy-washy Pepper and Tony are in their relationship because the end of Iron Man 3 is like, listen, this is like, we are everything. You are everything to me and I am willing to give up everything for you. And there's a dialogue that happens between Steve and Tony where he's like, I told her I'd give everything up, but I ended up not doing that because being Iron Man is super important to me. And, like, I understand that. I think that that makes sense in terms of why Pepper isn't around. But it felt like a scheduling conflict. The fact that, like, it was just one dialogue. is like, did did Gwyneth Paltrow just not be able to make it for three months or something? Like, did she have a different thing blocked out for these two weeks? Um, So, yeah, overall, didn't like the almost conscious exclusion of pepper another just because i'm looking at my notes chronologically the scene where bucky is trying to fly away in the helicopter and steve literally like gets on the ground and pulls the helicopter closer to the helicopter pad it was my favorite part of the movie like it's probably one of the coolest single shots in this movie and they give it away in the trailer (laughs) um The scene where Tony and Peter meet is pure chemistry, right? And we get a whole movie of this kind of chemistry in Homecoming. And I think that it starts off very well here. The two of them have a very good chemistry together. And I I just love this version of Spider-Man so much. And I also like the dynamic between Clint and Wanda. I know that they kind of have like almost like a father-daughter relationship, but it's something that we really only see in this movie and Age of Ultron for a little bit. I wish that this was something that we could have gotten a little bit more of. So Sharon Carter is in a little bit of this movie. Not a lot, but like more than any other movie that she's been in, in terms of the MCU. And again, in this is explored a little bit more in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but... Sharon like Sharon gets in trouble for stealing Caps and Falcon's gear, but it's not really mentioned until Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Like there's a throwaway line that's like, you know, you'll get in trouble for this. And she's like, yeah, I know. And then and then it's kind of forgotten. I just think that Sharon is only brought like she, she's like a sonic screwdriver in the sense that we need someone to appeal to Caps humanity. Get a Carter. And we'll give him a 30 second scene and then we'll push them back under the hedge. Uh, Jumping back to Spider-Man for a second. I like him a lot in this movie. Uh, He kind of doesn't get a good resolution in this movie. Like, I know he gets one of the after credit scenes, but like he's left at the airport and that's kind of the end of him in this movie. But him fighting at the airport, like was super cool and and the whole airport fight scene is amazing it's it's beautiful and it's fun though every time people like it i was not upset at whatever fight scene i was watching it's not like a fight scene was like oh the the other two that were fighting was more interesting just cut back to that like i was it was enjoyable 
to watch every single person on this uh, in this scene fight. Uh, like I said, highlights included Spider-Man fighting Falcon and Bucky. We get, you know, funny Spider-Man as well as like really cool choreography. I think everyone has really cool choreography. But when you have people like Spider-Man and Falcon that have like that aerial uh, aspect to it, it's it, it makes it a lot cooler. And Iron Man was kind of like graceful in the in this scene like I, I don't know what it was about his suit but like it made him appear a little bit more graceful in this scene however i do want to say that when it comes to that airport fight scene the big highlight is ant-man whenever ant-man was fighting i'm like not only is this going to be cool it's going to be funny and it's going to be interesting and it's going to be different like not different in the sense of like oh ant-man ha- didn't fight like this in the first movie but interesting in compared to like what everyone else was doing so i i just i thought it was that that airport fight scene was really cool and makes the majority of this movie um after the airport scene it kind of shifts actually i would say it happens before it but there's a shift in this movie where it stops being about the sokovia accords and is about bucky Right, and that's what makes it a Captain America movie, like I said before. But at the like at the end of the movie, Zemo gives like a kind of a monologue type deal to T'Challa. Was like, listen, the Avengers killed my family, and they just got to go home while I had to find my family's bodies. Right, and I think that that's like a really good motivation, and I really liked him detailing his plan a little bit more to T'Challa it was like oh this is actually kind of intimidating where was this Zemo throughout the entire movie this Zemo is an interesting villain I wish we had him sooner (laughs) I just I wish that this was an Avengers movie and I wish that the sowing of distrust happened across the entire team and not just cap versus tony right because eventually black widow comes comes around and understands cap's point of view even like t'challa comes around and sees cap's point of view like it's it's very clearly a personal matter when the like the movie ends on a personal matter when it was all such like a global issue, right? Like we have 117 countries that approve the Sokovia Accords. And this is the initial dividing point between the Avengers. And then we watch two hours of this movie and it ends with three people fighting. And I think that it wasn't as earth shattering as the rest of the cinematic universe implies it to be. And that was kind of my other complaint about this movie is it there are scenes, there are short scenes and even shorter conversations that have universe changing consequences for the rest of the movies. Right. But because they crammed so much in there, it it, it all felt when everything feels important, it all feels unimportant. Right. So when Black Widow goes on the run because she stopped 
T'Challa from getting on the Quinjet with Sharon stealing the gear and Cap just says, oh, you're going to be in trouble for this. And that becomes a plot point for six episodes of television. And there's just a lot of things that create a lot of consequences that I feel like are they're they're all they're just put into too little time. I wish some of this stuff could have been spread out a little bit more, but it is a fun movie. It It is a good movie. It is better than how I remembered it. So I'm giving this movie a seven and a quarter. I know I just like kind of criticized it a lot, but it's a fun movie. I just dropped something. Ignore that. It's a fun movie. Wish it was an Avengers movie. That's where I'm going to end it. Up next is Doctor Strange, I'm pretty sure. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a strange case of Dormammu. That's right. We're talking about Doctor Strange. 2016, we got Benedict Cumberbatch. We got Rachel McAdams, Tilda Swinton, Mads Mikkelsen. We got we got them all. Well, not a, not all. Uh, obviously, if we had them all, this would be a longer more a longer movie. But we got we have good people. We've got good. This has a good cast. This is a good cast. Um, but <laughs> so I have not seen this movie. Since it came out, I saw it in theaters, and I haven't seen it since. But the thing that I remembered the most was the special effects. And I think that still holds true, walking away from it, watching it again, is this movie excels when it is showing off its special effects. So whenever they're in the mirror dimension, that's when this movie is at its best. This movie, and and like this movie's weakness, I'm going... And this movie's weakness is... I I don't think a lot of the secondary characters are strong. They spend so much time developing Steven that I you kind of not you kind of don't care about any of the other characters. Um so much so that I forgot Mads Mikkelsen was in this movie. <laughs> he plays kind of a prominent role, but forgot he was in the movie. I remembered Rachel McAdams was in this movie, forgot about Mads Mikkelsen because Here's the thing, like the Dormammu ending is so iconic at this point that the fact that there ever was like a secondary villain is completely forgotten about. And I think that Mads Mikkelsen is a good enough actor to where he was like kind of waste. His potential was wasted in this movie. I think that the character that he played if they were to have him do that again, I wish that it could have been rewritten as kind of more of a mastermind scenario rather than just like him leading a few people to do one thing. Right. I kind of wish that he had like bigger, loftier goals than like, I I realize that like bring back Dormammu is like a pretty lofty goal, but I, I don't know. It seemed very like one dimensional in terms of character. Um, but then we introduce, so we introduce Mads Mikkelsen. We see him do that thing at the library. We see him steal the pages from the book, but then we cut to a different actor. We cut to Rachel McAdams. Love her. 10 out of 10. Hey movie. If you're looking for someone to be in your movie, 
make, make it Rachel McAdams all the time. Uh, I think that she is she is the best part of whatever scene she's in, which is a shame because she's not in a lot of this movie. And she doesn't really come back in any future movies. She probably will come back for Multiverse of Madness, but that's like a year away from now. So I, as of right now, I wish Rachel McAdams could have. I liked her character. I liked how she portrayed her character. I thought that she was a good balance for Steven. I wish there was more of her in this movie. Now, to talk about Steven, I think that Stephen Strange has a very good arc in this movie. Um, very Tony Stark in the sense that he's arrogant, good at what he does, and that causes the arrogance. You know, they both have like a feel of the a fear of failure. They and they cover it with arrogance and cockiness, right? And I, I think it's written very well at the beginning. He's he's arrogant to the point where he's annoying you, but you're like but you still see like a little bit of hope for him. Like he's good enough at what he does and he's not like he's snarky about it, but he's not like trying to crush people with his boot. You know what I mean? And then we move on to the car crash that he's in. And as an audience member, I feel like this car crash is kind of a double edged sword in terms of how we're supposed to feel about it. Because on one hand, this dude is in like a fast and furious seven level crash like no one should be walking away and he does and that in and of itself like you should not be asking for more than that when it comes to a car crash that severe but you see him lose the only thing that he was passionate about and that makes you feel bad so on one hand i'm like hey just be grateful you're alive but also i understand why this is demoralizing to say the least then he goes on this like quest to find the right medical treatment. And then he finds out about this place that uh, this, you know, heals through the mind and whatnot. And the guy that he talks to to find out the location about that is somewhat is a patient that he denied because he didn't think that he could treat him. Um, I thought that this so Dr. Strange goes to visit him at like a local basketball court or whatever to ask him about it. And this guy was like way too open about it. He like this guy had like one conversation and the patient and this guy even said, you denied me because you thought I was untreatable. Uh, we couldn't have that on your precious record or whatever. But then like after like five seconds, he's like, all right, I'll tell you where it is. It, it, it felt a little bit too much like a plot guru. Um, it's kind of the best term I have for it. I mean, I get it. There are more important things to this movie than him trying to find the place where he then has to become a sorcerer. But that one scene was just like, all right, this is here for convenience. I understand. Then we move on to th then we get to like the real meat of the movie, because all this is just act one trying to set up for everything. And from here on out, it just becomes... How can we amaze you with special effects, right? So it's part special effects, part Steven learning about how to be a good person, right? And there are lots of really cool moments. But like, in, as far as like character development goes, I don't like 
how the ancient one is written in this movie. I don't know what it, I, I don't know if I don't like the writing or if I don't like Tilda Swinton's performance of the ancient one, but I think there's like, I, I think that she's hiding too much that doesn't get revealed. Right. So the big thing about the ancient one is that, Oh, she's drawing on the dark dimension so she can continue to live. And that's her big secret is that she's drawing on the thing that she encourages that she encourages everyone to not explore. In fact, like like bans it, right? But it felt it felt like she was super she was portrayed as more all-knowing than I feel like we got. So she was a good mentor for Steven, but I don't think she was much more than that. I feel like there wasn't as much like Mr. Miyagi in Mr. Miyagi Yin happening. We're going to go with that. There wasn't that much of that happening with the ancient one. So all the learning that he was doing from Mordo was cool because Mordo was like on his level, right? And he was a good mentor to Steven as well. And the training sequence that they had where Mordu teaches him how to like conjure a weapon and they fight a little bit and he shows him about like enchanted items, basically cool stuff happening. But this is all just like, it's very clearly stuff that you could tune out of until you get to a fun visual point again. So they're only in the mirror dimension like two or three times in this movie. But when they're in it, they go hard. Like inception level mind messing with like the buildings turning like clocks and like levitating and spinning. That is by far the most interesting part of the movie. Unfortunately, it's not that much of the movie. Like understandably, I feel like the gimmick would kind of grow old if it was a whole act of the movie or what have you. But again, that's the coolest part. The coolest part of this movie is the magic. So not on on, the mirror dimension is cool. The spell casting is cool. I like it when he conjures the weapon in his hands and he kind of like uses it as a whip and a shield. Like I thought that was, I thought that was really fun. And the gadgets, I'm I'm, (laughs) gadgets. You know what I mean? Um, you know, we have Mads Mikkelsen throwing throwing shards of the mirror dimension, or at least that's what it looked like. Doctor Strange's cape, the eye that has the time stone in it. Wong has a few tools that he likes to use. So I just think that when... The thing that I was thinking about while watching this movie is, like, could this movie have been a better Disney Plus miniseries? Like, have eight episodes of Steven trying to go through the tribulations of, like, going to magic school. I feel like that could have been... I I think that could have been a little bit more interesting than what we were given. Because we were given a lot of shallow characters because this movie had to do a lot in, like, relatively little time. But, like I said, this movie is fun. You could watch it and you could tune out and tune back in at the exciting parts, which is a lot of this movie, but not all of it. So 
I'm giving this movie a 7.25 because it's super engaging and interesting, but not like it didn't like blow my mind other than the two or three mirror dimension scenes. Like that's what I'm walking away with both times after watching this movie. So that's where I'm sitting on to the next ego, the living planet more like ego is what my ex-wife had. (coughs) Anyway, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is a movie that I watched using my Disney Plus subscription. Disney, sponsor me. So, Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Um... I was not looking forward to rewatching this one, personally. Ignore if you heard that computer sound. No, you didn't. I was not really looking forward to rewatching this one. I remember liking it in theaters, but the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. I definitely enjoyed rewatching it. I'm like, like this movie definitely held up better after watching it than it did in my own memory. And so the, the problems that I had with this movie I think are still valid and I still agree with my criticisms that I've had of it previously, but the rest of the movie is, is good enough to where those smaller things aren't as much of a problem, right? So my big problem, when people ask me, why did you not like Guardians 2 as much as Guardians 1? I said, because Guardians 1 was an amazing space romp. Like they went from planet to planet to planet to planet And it felt like it truly felt like a sci-fi movie. And that's what I really liked about it. And Guardians 2, most of it is on a single planet or on a single Ravager ship. And I think that complaint still stands. I think Guardians of the Galaxy has this uh, ability that none of the other movies, except for like maybe Doctor Strange, had until now, which was like, hey we can go visit things that are not bound by earth because even like Thor, because even Thor had like, they were balancing Asgard, but like there was still so much earth involved on it and guardians didn't have to worry about balancing earth. So we're like, Hey, let's just go do space stuff. And they did that in the first one and they didn't do as much of it in the second one. So I still find that disappointing. I wish there was like, obviously when your antagonist is a living planet, it's hard to make it about other planets. So I get it, but it's still probably my biggest complaint overall. And like, since we're addressing complaints (laughs) right at the top, um, in my first, in the guardians one, Review, I said that I don't think Drax is funny. Still, still here. Still not my favorite. Still my least favorite guardian. Uh, He does this thing in this movie that he didn't do as much in the first movie where he does this incredibly aggressive laugh where he will break the silence of a room with the most obnoxious belly laugh on the planet and it ruins every scene it happens in. But, like, not to say, I, I don't want to, like, crap on Drax the entire time. Because he definitely had moments in this movie. I think he was better in the first movie, but he had moments in this movie. Like, 
uh, that scene where Mantis and him kind of like open up a little bit together and you see a, it, it feel this is the first time where Drax's emotions are not plot driven or drives the plot. So to hear him just kind of like talk about something, talk about his family without any sort of like without anything writing on it, I guess is a good way to put it. It it definitely made Drax a little bit better. Um, another thing, so like again, Guardians of the Galaxy, very quintessential thing about it is the soundtrack, um, the the pop culture songs that are used and the pop culture references. I I still think that this soundtrack is not as well woven in the plot. Maybe it's just because I'm less familiar with these songs than I was with the first set of songs. I didn't feel as much of an emotional attachment to this soundtrack as I did the Guardians 1 soundtrack. Which, I I mean, like, maybe that's just a problem with this being a sequel. Is like, hey, we're gonna try, but it's very difficult to replicate magic like that. So I, I don't really hold it against the movie in terms of like, I need to dock a lot of points for this, but you you hear the music and it's like, I know what you're trying to do, but it's it just didn't connect with me. And uh, I think this movie did a good job of character growth all around. I think every character like really gets their time to grow a little bit. I still don't think the Ravager... <sighs> I st- I still don't love the Ravagers, just like as a concept, in terms of like a group of characters, like they're just like incredibly aggressive, and they they don't like they don't match the energy that this movie is putting in, and I don't know how else to describe it other than that. So do with that as you will. Um, but there was a scene like with characters growing and whatnot, the scene where Nebula and Gamora finally open up and like bond as sisters. And like, this is how this is the beginning of them actually forming a relationship. It was a very nice scene. I did like that scene a lot. However, it was kind of just like put where it needed to be, not where it should have been. If that makes sense. It was very much like a time to check the watch. And Nebula should be showing up any second now. And there she is. Like, that's kind of how that scene's pacing was for me. But like I like I said, I, I do really like their chemistry, Gamora and Nebula. Like, they, it, it's just like a, they have a Venn diagram of interests. Like, these are things Gamora needs. These are things Nebula needs. And they overlap a little bit more than they think they do. And watching them go through that overlap together is is super interesting. I like watching stuff like that. To to go back to the concept of this movie not being as much of a space romp as I would have liked it to be, this movie kind of tried to remedy that or like try to, try to like take that energy and put it into what Ego was trying to do because Ego was essentially trying to take over the entire galaxy, right? And there's a scene of him, like, of, like, uh, projections of every planet that he has, like, I'm going to say, planted his seed on. And when he does it like that, like, obviously, there's 
like incredibly large stakes, literally galactic stakes here. But for some reason, because it all felt so centralized, it didn't have that galactic oomph that Roman did in the first Guardians. Um, other character things. Now, listen, I understand that this movie is like the movie that serves as a redemption arc for both Yondu and Nebula. And I know that their fates are a little, we're kind of past the point of being able to do this, but they, but Yondu and Nebula have one scene together, literally like one interaction where they're in the spaceship and Nebula is hooked up to the spaceship or the gunship or whatever. And Yandu looks at her and goes, this is going to hurt. And Nebula is like, promises, promises. And I'm like, I don't know why, but this scene right here, I want to see more of this. Like they just had a certain banter-esque chemistry that I feel like would have really worked. Maybe not for a whole movie, but if they had paired up for an act of a movie, like if they had to fend for themselves for a little bit, I I would watch that. I think they had a good dynamic together that unfortunately could not have been explored. And speaking of things that I wish could have been explored a little bit more, I think that Peter having Ego's powers was super cool. But we only got to do like two things with them. He made a ball and he turned into Pac-Man. I'm like, hey, you're going to you're going to give Peter literal God powers and take them away in the same act of a movie. (laughs) Like give us a little time to explore. Like if he had the powers like closer to the beginning of the movie, then maybe the movie could have been more about training and using his powers. And that would have been like, that could have been a better payoff, but they gave him powers just to take them away. It feels like, or they gave him powers just so he could fight ego. And I'm like this, it it, again felt convenient. And, and I know a lot of people were like, Yondu's death is one of the saddest deaths in the MCU. And I agree. It's very sad. However, the thing that got me is when rocket got on the ship, ready to leave the planet. And he's like, And everybody's asking him, where's Peter? Where's Peter? Where's Peter? And he just, like, doesn't say anything. He electrifies Gamora so she can't go after him. And, like, he is quietly resigned to leaving Peter behind. And that that was what made me sad. Just, like, and, like, the quiet, like, I can only lose one friend today. Like, that was, oof, that was a very emotional moment. And then double that with uh what happened with Yondu and Yondu's funeral I think that this movie I I think that it 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 carried the emotion very very well at the end and and I commend this movie a lot so I think this movie does have problems I don't love all the characters but it is incredibly funny it, it like the humor is so funny I was laughing a lot during this movie and there were just, there were a lot of good things in this movie. So I'm giving this a seven and a half, which is a lot higher than I thought I was going to give when I started watching this movie. But I do have to say one last thing before we transition. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way that Peter didn't 
recognize ego as Kurt Russell, right? So he has uh, ego has this line where he's like, I took time to find the form that was most appealing to you. But, and so like you could say, oh, he turned into Kurt Russell because that's a form that Peter trusted. But Peter never talked about Kurt Russell. Peter never like, like if Peter should have seen him be like, oh, you look like Kurt Russell. Oh, oh, I was a big fan of you in the thing. Oh, I remember you from Escape from New York. Nothing. I think that that is an opportunity that too many people let pass. Like, clearly, this is the pop culture nerd, and you're letting them not make pop culture references when those actors are in the same project? Wasted opportunity. Wasted opportunity. So, seven and a half. It was a good movie. Up next, I think, is Spider-Man. I hope it's Spider-Man. All right. Here we are, Spider-Man Homecoming. Okay, so before we get started, I want to talk about, like, my history with Spider-Man. Because it's, like, I don't want to say it's weird, but I've always had mixed feelings about him. Just, like, as a character. Because I remember liking the Sam Raimi movies when they first came out, right? But there was just, like... Because I was young at the time, I, like, never, like, really fully connected to the idea. Um, And also, on top of that, I was a little bit of a hipster. And, you know, because everybody liked Spider-Man, I wanted to like someone else. And I wanted to not care about Spider-Man. And that's kind of how I felt, like, all through the Andrew Garfield run. Um, I've only seen... I saw half of one Andrew Garfield movie. I saw it while I was on a first, my very first date ever. I saw Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man. And we stopped the movie halfway through because it was, I was 14 and on a, and on a date. And I'm like, there is, this is not, this is not optimal for what I want to do. Uh, that's came off wrong. You know what I mean? I'm pure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I spent a long time feeling incredibly indifferent about Spider-Man. And when the Tom Holland and when this movie came out, I was still relatively indifferent about Spider-Man. I like when he got revealed in Civil War, I was like not phased by it. But then and then I watched this movie and I'm like, cool, you know, Spider-Man is cool, but like overall, I wasn't like moved by it or anything. But then when Into the Spider-Verse came out, that that movie changed everything about how I felt about Spider-Man. And so after seeing that, I've gone back and I've rewatched the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies and they just hit different as an adult. And I was glad to come back and rewatch this movie. Now, like I said, technically I haven't seen a full Andrew Garfield movie, but I think the best conclusion that I can come to is Tom Holland is my favorite Spider-Man, but his movies are not my favorite Spider-Man movies. Like, I just felt like the stakes were really low throughout the entire movie, which is fine. He's a 15-year-old child. The stakes do not have to be incredibly high, but... The, it felt like the movie was more about, like, him 
impressing Tony than it was about him finding himself as Spider-Man, which I understand that impre- that to Peter in this movie, impressing Tony was him becoming Spider-Man, but it, it felt like they were two completely disconnected objectives rather than one thing that could lead to another. Right? Right? Um. So that's just kind of how I feel about the overall tone of the movie. It's fun. It is so much fun. Like I said, I love Tom Holland, and I think he's like the perfect amount of quippy versus serious, and he's serious about the job, and he's uh, well-spirited and stuff like that. Very good Spider-Man. Just in general, this whole movie has this con... It does this like recurring bit of how happy is like too good he thinks he's too high up on the rung to deal with peter so he just like dismisses him he ignores his phone calls his texts i understand that that's you know part of the plot and what drives peter but it got to a point where i'm just like happy you are being mean to a teenager get it together man so that got frustrating after a while but that was like he and this movie didn't do secondary characters very well. Like I said, there was that problem with Happy, and Z- I remember when this movie came out, Zendaya was like advertised to be like a big part of this movie. She's hardly in it. She has like ten minutes of screen time, and she doesn't say a single serious line. So. Not as strong in this movie. And her not being strong in this movie led me to not care about her in Far From Home. But we'll see how I feel when I rewatch that one. Um, Again, and like with more secondary characters, I thought that Flash Thompson, like, yeah, obviously he's supposed to be the bully. But I just don't like watching scenes like that. Like maybe do it once or twice to establish that he's just mean to peter but then he brings the entire school in on it and he starts chants about it i'm like flash stop it stop it and liz was i i actually liked liz's character i thought that him or i thought that her and peter actually had pretty decent chemistry the considering how they hardly had any screen time together but when they talked i I did like their conversations and even like even tony is a secondary character in this movie and i like the chemistry that they had at the beginning and no i take that back i like the chemistry they had throughout the entire movie and tony being like a disappointed father for towards peter was like it was a very good and very moving theme. And obviously there's the iconic line of like, if you are nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. And probably the most iconic part of that movie of this movie rather. But there are obviously there are lots of good things. I did enjoy this movie. And I think this movie really finds its feet in terms of like, what it wants action scenes for this movie to be when they're in Washington, D.C. And he's trying to do and he's scaling the monument and catching the elevator. A a lot of things in that scene were based on the web breaking. Like there were lots of moments of tension because the web broke. Just a theme. I don't care. But that moment where he's scaling the wall and 
he only has like seconds to catch the elevator like that 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 scene has so much tension i love it and it and there is just and there's another scene with just as much tension and it's when michael keaton finds out that peter is spider-man and there's just this like palpable scene after liz goes into the high school and they have that like dad talk so to speak again just palpable tension with that scene i and like overall i think this movie does a really good job at showing us how much of a rookie peter is and the consequences for it every fight that he's in he does a really good job but not a good enough job and i think that that's very important for a Spider-Man movie where Spider-Man is trying to prove himself despite the fact he has very little professional experience. I think this movie is fun, but it doesn't hit all the points that it needs to hit. Like I said, I I feel like the stakes could have been a little bit higher. Like I understand the consequences of what would happen if the Vulture had robbed the Avengers plane like that. But for some reason, when they were, when Peter was like scaling, not scaling, but, you know, climbing around the plane, trying to get inside and whatnot. I did not feel as much tension about that scene than the other action scenes that came before it. So it it was doing really well on the setup. I just feel like the climax, the, the, the climax was most intense when we find out that, that the vulture is Liz's dad and the conversation that they have. After they find, after he finds out that Peter is Spider Man, those are that's the best part of the climax, and then it's just like, all right, now he's climbing on a plane, and that's kind of it. I yeah, overall, good movie misses a few points, like misses yeah, you know what I mean. I'm giving this. I think I'm gonna give this a flat seven. I I this was not as much fun as I was kind of hoping it would be but still fun. All right, here we are, Thor Ragnarok. And I'm recording this part uh, totally by myself. I don't know. I've been recording the rest of these by myself. I don't know why I decided to... Hello? Hello? Mom? Mom, is that you? Uh, Talking to me from heaven, even though you're not dead? I mean, you can call me mama, but it's bugs. Oh, oh, hey, bug. How's it going? (laughs) Hi, Craig. Hey, you didn't happen to also watch Thor Ragnarok, did you? You know what? I did, actually. That is so crazy. Do you think that you could help me talk about it? Oh, my gosh. I'd love to. Okay, so (laughs) this I, I was originally conflicted about this movie because if you've been listening to the other parts, you know that I am not a, let's say, huge fan of thor and his respective movies but obviously this movie like blew away in theaters and i enjoyed it in theaters but i was still like i didn't walk away completely sold on the idea of thor uh that changed rewatching this (laughs) that's something that i was actually talking with someone about earlier was how like with the marvel cinematic universe like most of the time people are either like really into captain america or they're really into thor but if you're into one or the other you don't like 
the other. Or like <laughs> you're generally sense. unimpressed by the other. Exactly. And that's kind of like how I felt because like the first two movie, two Thor movies was not that big of a fan was kind of like, okay, here we go. Real quick. I want to say if you were a fan of the first Thor movies, please talk to me (laughs) because I need to know who you are and what your general life situation is. No judgment. I'm genuinely curious as you were. (laughs) But this one turned it all around and i think it's because it doesn't take itself as seriously and it's actually like instead of a superhero movie with like comedic bits it's a comedic superhero movie yeah absolutely and the intro is like literally the strong it's one of the strongest parts of the movie because it sets the tone so clearly and it stays in that tone for the rest of the movie absolutely also did you know that surter or Suter, or whatever his name is, uh, voiced by Mr. Krabs. I did not know that, but I love that. <laughs> I, I I listened to him, and I'm like, I know he's a voice actor. He, I, 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 it's in my brain. And then I saw it was Clancy Brown, and I'm like, yep, I hear it now. I <laughs> hear it now. Imagine Suter just like, I don't know, talking about SpongeBob. That was dumb. That was going nowhere. Talking like I was saying, Krabby Patty. Yeah. Um, oh, so the, I have my notes kind of chronological, kind of thematic. Um, mm-hmm. One of my biggest complaints about Thor, and I said it in my discussion about Thor the Dark World, is that watching him fight with a hammer was super awkward. And like he was just not great and it was never graceful. This movie solved that problem in two ways. One. They made him, the fights with the hammer were so much more graceful. Instead of him using it as a sword, he used it as like a, like a spinner, which was right. way better. And then they solved it a second time by getting rid of the hammer. <laughs> <laughs> they heard you. They heard what you wanted. Hey, Mr. YTD, I uh, just wanted to say thank you for making this Thor movie specifically for me. <laughs> um, also, Loki is better in this movie. Uh, oh he's he's generally more mischievous, which it's not just like in the other Thor movies. It's one big act of betrayal, whereas this movie has a lot of like little bits of mischievousness sprinkled throughout. Speaking of Loki, I like how this was the movie of all of the movies of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they finally color matched his eyebrows to his hair. Listen, sometimes <laughs> color matching doesn't always work see thor the first one but <laughs> this time it did you get i definitely i don't know why it's it's only the thor movies where i'm super focused on their eyebrows because they messed them up before so badly and now in this one they finally got it right for everybody <laughs> um dr strange pure comedy Oh, oh my God, pure comedy. Also, the address that he left on the note card for Thor was uh, 177A Bleecker Street. That's a Sherlock reference, right? I, I believe a- so, yes. Okay, just wanted to double check. Um, also, going yeah. back, um, can we talk about Matt Damon Loki for just a second? <laughs> and how it makes me laugh so hard every time I watch it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
And like, also, I think why that scene is so perfect is because it's funny as a movie and then it's also funny behind the scenes like the details are funny like oh loki is played by matt damon and you know who <laughs> thor is played by luke hemsworth <laughs> makes it so good and like the guy who plays odin is one of the guys from jurassic park like what <laughs> like they just got they just like oh hey here's three like a-list actors for mm, 45 seconds being absolute fools absolute fools and like and um and loki like narrating the play as he's watching it is like peak cynicism i love it i just love the little oh yeah (laughs) yeah uh so in the dark world they introduced like some other asgardians that were like around the Bifrost and like they were played by Zachary Levi. And that's the only thing I remember about them is one of them was Zachary (laughs) Levi. And they were on screen for like mm, a minute in the dark world. And then in this movie, they're like, we kind of don't want to bring those characters back. So they just killed them. What? (laughs) What? They were like, we had to put all of our funding into getting Matt Damon to be Loki. So. <laughs> yeah. Like, can you imagine like being those guys and being like, hey, Zachary Levi, I know you're about to start filming Shazam. Can you get into hair, makeup and costume for like, I don't know, a two day shoot where you are on screen for four seconds getting killed? And he's like, uh, I'll do I- it for $200,000. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Zachary Levi impression, by the way. Um, Amazing. Hella catching and breaking Mjolnir is such a cool moment. So cool. Like it happens early on in the film and like you could argue it gets drowned out by other cooler moments later on. But in terms of like fundamentally, like that moment is really cool. And like a super, like a detail that I noticed that I don't know is necessarily cool. I just personally liked it is that she doesn't just catch it. She catches it as it's still flying because, like, the wristband is still parallel with the ground and with Mjolnir. So Mjolnir is still flying towards her full force, and she's just holding it. It's like holding a car that's still driving towards you. And I like that they filmed it to where you can see the tension of her holding it back. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolute. Like, Hela is good. Like, Hela is so intimidating that she didn't need the screen time of a main antagonist. She's so intimidating that I had a crush on her. Oh my god. Do I need to put you <laughs> Do I need to put you in H word jail? Do I need to put you in H word jail? No. Okay. You're that's strike She's just one. Pretty. Strike one. Okay. <laughs> um Uh, Another big complaint that I have with just movies in general is they spend so much time in act one trying to get us where the movie wants us to be to do the big concept, right? This movie doesn't do that. We are on Sakaar in like 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So we have so much time to play on that planet that I never felt like anything on Sakaar was rushed. No. And so... Last time we talked about Age of Ultron together, we mentioned that was, you? That was I. Oh wow! I forget so much. <laughs> um, while we were watching it, 
we t- our recording about it, we talked about the Bruce and Nat like relationship, and I like how they had brought that back with the video playing in the ship once Thor is there, and then shortly after we get Bruce back from the Hulk. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, and I have another note about Thor. Thor's first reaction when seeing the Hulk was telling him that the sun was going down, which mm-hmm. like the fact that Thor first of all even knew about that let alone remembered it i think is a testament to his character i thought that was really cool i agree it showed him that he's not just some dumb oaf he actually cares about the people around him yeah um did you notice that as thor was entering sakar as he was on the chair and that like automated voice was going did you notice that pure imagination from Willy wonka was playing in the background i had that in my notes (laughs) because i hear it i hear the da 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 and i'm like that sounds so familiar that's so familiar and i'm like they wouldn't they they did (laughs) like it's the fact that it's like can you imagine if, like, the Grandmaster pulled that song just because he liked Willy Wonka so much? Like, probably never heard of Earth, probably, like, doesn't understand the human race, but he's like, man, that Gene Wilder, he's a, man, he's a catch. He's a catch. Um, Valkyrie's face paint is the best part of her costume. Um, Valkyrie's alcoholism was a little weird. Yeah. I don't know how else to put it. It just felt awkward and like it was just there to like make her character less serious. Yeah. Like obviously like when you break it down, it makes sense. Like she's the sole survivor of the Valkyries that attacked Hela the first time. So she's using alcoholism as a coping mechanism. But because we don't find that out for like a while, she's just kind of like, I don't, I don't know how else to put it, but she throws off the vibe a little bit. Just just a little bit. Just, just a, a little, little bit. bit. Still a great character. Love her, to, love her to death. I think the dumbest thing that Loki did throughout this entire movie was when he called the Bifrost while they were, like, first facing Hela. Oh, yeah, sure. That just gave her a one-way ticket to Asgard. Like, Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> this movie just reminded me I think I saw a TikTok about it, but seeing it in action was funny of just how often Loki is just on the ground in this movie. Um, Like how he was falling for 30 minutes and then landed in Dr. Strange's place. And then, and then as Loki is charging Dr. Strange, he just gets teleported to Norway. Like bro cannot stand up to save his life. Okay. Knocking him down. He's too powerful. Um, before Thor goes into the arena and like, so like before we meet the Hulk, like Loki comes in to talk to Thor about like, why would you follow me? You didn't think I was coming to visit you. And then he says, um, that, that Loki was betting against him. So don't disappoint me. Like, bro, that's like the darkest thing you've said. (laughs) What? (laughs) Why? Well, he said it after Thor just stood there throwing rocks at him. So I feel like it was just <laughs> to get under his skin because he was like, bro, I'm here. I'm trying to have a conversation with you, trying to make a plan to get us both out of here. And you're throwing rocks at me. So you know what? Don't disappoint me. Make me my money. 
And hey kids, uh, are you trying alcohol for the first time? Have you never done a drinking game before? Here's your first drinking game that'll surely set you straight. Uh, take a shot every time somebody throws something at Loki. No maximum during each scene. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger Done the for. item, the taller the shot. Done for. Ten minutes <laughs> in. Um, let's see. Oh, I think this movie does concepts very well. It does concepts for just long enough to where I'm satisfied with them, but like they never overstay their welcome. And the thing that made me realize this is when Thor is able to see through Heimdall's eyes and he's like on Asgard again. And they're having that conversation as uh, Heimdall is escorting refugees out. Like, I don't know why, but just like that concept is super cool and it was executed very well. I agree. I also like how Thor would suck up to whoever he needed to to get on their side. Like, he sucked <laughs> up to the Hulk, and then when Bruce was back, he sucked up to Bruce. Yeah, because he does a line that's like, oh, no, I hated Bruce. You were my favorite. Bruce is all numbers, numbers, numbers. And then he says the exact opposite to Bruce. Love it. Love it shows it. that he's the older sibling, because that's what <laughs> older siblings do. The oh, So, like I said, Hela... Very intimidating. You might even say she was hella intimidating. Uh, <laughs> hey. Um, but she was, she had very bad dialogue. Uh, she says a line during the final fight or during the fight scene that she has with Thor in the throne room. And I have it verbatim. It is, here's the difference between us. I was Odin's first bun. <laughs> <laughs> Odin had a bun in the oven. Now, now my point isn't going to be as serious, but we're going to take it again. Here's the difference between us. I was Odin's firstborn and the rightful heir and the savior of Asgard. You are nothing. Hey, do you know what else is nothing? That line. What? Like that wasn't as much of a hard hitter as they thought it was. Like, normally when somebody says, here's the difference between us, it's normally, like, some stark difference, something really specific. No, she just points out the obvious. I was born first. Can I speak for (laughs) once in my life? Hey, guys, professional (laughs) podcaster here with, like, 50 hours of podcasting (laughs) under my belt. And here I am blowing it. Because I'm here. I know you're intimidated. Shh. Um, anyway, we're just going to move on to a completely separate point. Man, that big dog was cool, huh? It was very much indeed. Oh, um, <laughs> I also love that how, you know, 10 years in Hulk's or Bruce still doesn't have the whole Hulk thing down to a science yet. Cause in the first Avengers movie, when he says, that's a secret, I'm always angry. And he just like one shots that Chitari. Everybody's like, oh, he now knows how to control the Hulk. This is not a problem for any future movies. Then, seven years later, he jumps out of a ship because he thinks he's going to turn into the Hulk before he hits the ground and breaks every bone in his body. Yeah. But, like, imagine being Banner and, like, realizing you just dissociated for two years as a whole other creature and then immediately having to jump into action. Yeah, oh my god, that would that that would be terrifying. Like the fact that he almost turned right back into the Hulk because of how stressed out he was, like, yeah, I would too. 
Yeah, like I pro- he held it together way better than I would have. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And <laughs> maybe this is maybe this is too nitpicky. Maybe maybe this is too nitpicky. But they made a point several times to talk about how Tony's pants were too tight. <laughs> but when he jump when he turns into the Hulk, he's still wearing those pants. There's maybe there's some extra stretch. Knowing Tony, he probably makes all of his pants Hulk proof just in case. Probably. <laughs> um, this movie. Uh, do you have any other big notes? Oh well, I just I had um, there's two. Okay. Uh, I really liked how they showed like Loki's little smirk after Thor told the story of him turning into a snake and then stabbing him. Like, I he also was, like, noticed that reminiscing fondly on it. And he was like, <laughs> yeah, I did that. Loki smirks so much in any movie he's in. It's kind of hard to find any one of them more charming than another. But that that one was definitely stand stood. It stood out. Yes. And then when Heimdall says, welcome home, I saw you coming. And Loki's like, of course you did. Because in like the original movies, Heimdall's like, or the first movies, Heimdall's like, I couldn't see you coming. I didn't see you coming. And so, like, that shows that Loki wanted to be seen coming, wanted people to know that they would be okay. Yeah. Um, this movie ends on a big cliffhanger, obviously. This movie ends with the setup to Infinity War. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe th- this is just me saying what I wish and what I would have wanted in a perfect world is, like, a movie of um like wandering as guardians could have been a cool movie especially with uh, I, especially a movie with a loki that will is willing to use his mischievous for good mm-hmm. and so that like we're like okay here is loki he wants to be an asgardian he wants to be with his family and he dies in the next movie <laughs> Gotta love it. Um, but I do want to say. So, did you have any other big notes? No, that was it. Okay, this was definitely something I enjoyed genuinely rewatching. I think I walked away enjoying this movie more than I have for the last like three years. So, I think I need to give this movie a flat eight. That's I was gonna go with eight eight point five for this one. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, a few character things needed to be changed. Oh, we went this entire time without talking about the Grandmaster. Um, (laughs) uh, The Grandmaster, I think, is the perfect B-villain because he's not intimidating. He does not... um, He's pure charisma. And... Uh, we Since we know he's not the main bad guy, we kind of, like, let him have his fun. He's just Jeff Goldblum if Jeff Goldblum had power. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, 10 out of 10, love the Grandmaster. Uh, movie, 8 out of 10. A few character things could have been different. Um, I'm not the biggest Korg. What's his name? Korg. Yeah, I'm not the biggest Korg fan. Um, But there, this movie is very good. This is p- pure comedy with good action. So 8, eight out of 10. Agreed. Uh, the next movie is the last movie for this episode uh, we are ending on the Black Panther, and I mean, see, here's the thing: I never know how to end each recording because I know that I should not say anything, 
because the, it's going to transition to the next movie no matter what I say. Mm-hmm. I should not say anything, but it feels so weird ending a recording without personal closure. It should be like, now on to the Black Panther. Okay, okay, hold on. Let me, let me, na- now, na- now on to the Black Panther. Black Panther. Nailed Blundering it. mess. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, Black Panther. This is the last one that we're going to be doing for this episode. So we're going to leave all the Avengers stuff for the next episode. But this is not about the Avengers. This is about Black Panther. Overall, this might be a little controversial. (laughs) Not a good way to start a review. But this is definitely one of those I remember it better than it was type movies. Because the gist of it is as follows, right? Really good action. Really good action. But there were a lot of like slow scenes that I just kind of felt like... it. I don't want to say it felt like they were padding time, but if there were scenes to cut, I have a few in mind. But starting from the beginning... <laughs> even when I saw this in theaters, I had the same feeling watching it again. The beginning of this movie is too dark. <laughs> like, the intro in Oakland, where T'Chaka kills Killmonger's dad, that scene is incredibly dark, visually, not lit very well. And then they do that stealth mission, also really dark, also difficult to see. Hey, I understand that it's a stealth mission, and the whole black suit is advantageous in a stealth mission at night. But as an audience member, I can't see what's happening. But but that stealth scene, though, the um, I never freeze line, still iconic, still iconic. Um, Another iconic line, the what are those joke? Listen, that joke was aged when that movie came out. However, I think enough time has passed to where I appreciate it as a piece of uh, comedic history more than anything else. Uh, But I I know it got a kick out of me. Some other surface level things I was thinking. Um, Wakanda does not feel like a living, breathing city. Maybe we just didn't see enough of it to feel uh, not a city, but a country rather. Because we only saw the lab, the train, and the fields. So, and like, we get a few shots of what kind of looks like a market square or something like that. But um, in general, I, I assume that like this all takes place at the, at the capital of Wakanda. If they n- named it, I didn't catch it. But it just felt like, it, it felt like three locations. And... And, and that problem doesn't get resolved in the future because every time we're in Wakanda from here on out, we're either in the lab or on the fields. <laughs> so I, I think like when comparing this to Asgard, I think Asgard does a little bit of a better job at feeling a little bit more involved just in general. Wakanda does not feel like a society. It feels like a lab with with really intense guards. Now, 
This movie's strengths and weaknesses are in its characters, as most movies. Um, the first, I, I think the biggest glaring problem is Killmonger was too complex of a character to share the screen with Claw. And because Killmonger was a better character than Claw, Claw did not get the recognition that he deserved either. So like that very beginning, not the very beginning, but when Claw and Killmonger rob that museum, that little heist they do is super cool. Watching them work together was really cool. And watching Killmonger break Claw out of interrogation. Again, cool. But we were hyping Claw up to be the big bad and to kill him so anticlimactically in an airplane graveyard or whatever it was felt like a disservice and maybe the maybe the idea was to oh here's the big bad we're gonna kill him to make the new big bad seem even more intimidating and i'm like sure a little but we saw claw in age of ultron so we already kind of like have a little bit of a connection to him and the fact that he's just kind of like snuffed out felt again just felt like a disservice but and, and like I said, Killmonger is there's an, there's enough layers for him. There's enough layers to him for him to not need another character to introduce him. I am a big fan of this like unwilling court serving a less than deserving king trope. I really like that trope a lot. And so we could have gotten more of that if we weren't so worried about introducing him through Claw. You know what I mean? I think uh, it's a pretty common consensus to say that Killmonger is the best one, or is the best not Thanos villain in the MCU, and I'm inclined to agree. Uh, really strong motivations. Uh, he had, like, a tactile plan to get it done. Uh, and, like, he was scary. <laughs> uh, so... I just, uh, there were a lot of good characters that were forced to split their time. And then there was Agent Ross, who, through no fault of his own, I think, was in every bad scene of this movie. The interrogation scene. Cool, not great. Um, the not cool part of the Korea scene is the scene that he's a part of. You know, he's not as involved in the car chase part. But, and then there's the going to M'Baku to get T'Challa's body and try to get M'Baku to help. That is one of the scenes that I would just straight up cut. Because, first of all, I don't like M'Baku. He acts like a toddler. Not a fan of him. And... I just think that that's one of those scenes that that is just one of those scenes that's only there to set up a payoff, right? They're there to ask for his help. He says no. And then he shows up in the final battle. So if we weren't trying to get that payoff, we would not have to go to M'Baku. We would find another way to have his body, to have T'Challa's body, or he wouldn't have gotten thrown off the edge at all, you know? Uh, I'm doing a lot of criticism in a row, so th there's a lot of good stuff in this movie, too. The costumes, amazing. The colors, amazing. The music, fantastic. I 
really like T'Challa. I really like that entire immediate cast. So I, I like I like Shuri and everyone else. Big fan of those guys. Um, and and like I said before, the action is really cool. All the technology is really cool. Doing the drift turn with T'Challa like scraping up the blacktop was was cool. All the technology that they used on the cars was cool. My personal favorite was um or my f- personal favorite piece of tech that was used was when Ross was flying like the hologram jet and him like using the supersonic burst. I thought that was really cool. I think I don't know if I could get what I want from this movie and still have it be the same movie. So just like, I think that there are just a lot of pure structural problems in this movie, which again, I'm being incredibly aggressive. This is a good movie. It's just, I feel bad because it is a better in my memory movie. Uh, So I'm giving this a seven and a quarter, which I think is what I give civil war. Cause I think those movies are very similar. Lots of good things. Some pretty harsh structural problems. All right. So that's the last movie for this episode. I am not going to do my rating yet for the overall phase because the phase isn't done. Um, yeah, the last episode is going to be two weeks from now, two Fridays from now, and that'll wrap up our MCU journey. I do have plans to do the TV shows and the new movies, but those are, those are going to take, those are on the back burner. Got other things churning first, but they are still on the docket. So... Until next time, have fun, be safe, and make good choices.